scripture reading comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when, when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for the food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of it fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed thick, thick leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is the reading of God's word. Good to see everybody um, here today. Um, hopefully you made it okay through the, uh, the blizzard. I don't, I don't know about you. It, it like, feels like past year or two years, I just always feel like you're in limbo. Um, weather doesn't help. And, you know, God knows what other difficult things have been happening in your life. But um, it can be hard to be faithful. And so, you know, sort of like what Dan pray, I am thankful for those of us here who continue to serve and to set up and to come early to church and do these things and to provide our in-person worship. And, you know, if you're home uh, watching us, uh, thanks for joining. But um, I pray that we can all continue to just make it through and look forward to a time where things will just continue to get better. Um, <clears throat> you know, I grew up in the South, um, those of you who already know me, you know that I've lived in 10 different states in this country at least. And it's not because every time I say that, my, you know, people always ask me, is it because your dad is in the army? And it's not. It's just, you know, he, he, was, he was teaching in some universities and then he decided to go into industry and, you know, he just kept wanting to go up and up. And so he had to keep moving from company to company. He'd go anywhere. It didn't matter. And so, you know, we lived in weird and awkward places, especially during the 80s and the 70s, like places where they didn't know what Korea was at the time. One of the places was in Oklahoma. I lived in Oklahoma for five years, right, Oklahoma City. Um, <clears throat> and uh, it's kind of strange growing up in a, in a situation like that because not only uh, is everything pretty southern and, and pretty uh, white, but um, you had very, very Korean parents. And, you know, one thing about my dad is, that, um, and, and maybe you can relate, we, we don't discipline our kids the way we used to. And my dad was really good at disciplining. He loved to, dis he loved to discipline. And, and it was kind of scary, I, I think, growing up thinking about it. You couldn't get away with the things that he did. And growing up in Oklahoma, like, everybody wore boots, <clears throat> cowboy boots. 
Can you imagine that? Like Asians are going to school with cowboy boots. It, that's what we did. We wore cowboy boots. We, we, we bought uh, hats and we had belts with these huge buckles like this, right? And just like shiny and, and that's, that, that's how, we, how we grew up. And my dad had one. He had one of those belts with this huge buckle. But, you know, the thing is what he would do is like when I would get in trouble at home and there was one time where I was just running around the house. I was probably in like fifth or sixth grade and, and my mom had these, these um, pieces of furniture that was sent to her from Korea by her mom. It was really precious to her. And she always told me, don't run around the house. But I would never listen. And, and I would go and I would run and, you know, chase my sister around the house. And we would just, you know, raise a ruckus. And then just one time I, I, I accidentally knocked over one of these pieces of furniture. And it fell to the ground and it shattered in pieces. I knew I did something wrong. But what I was scared of was my dad because he knew I, he saw the whole thing. And so what he liked to do is this. He'd take his belt out, right, that belt with the big buckle, and he'd start, he start chasing me. And, and, and you know, I, I clearly remember this. I, I, I don't know what he looked like because I didn't want to see his face, but I could hear this whoosh, 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 because he would literally swing that belt over and over again, and I could literally feel it, and I would run for my life. Look, I have... Never run as fast as I did when I was those in elementary school in those years. Uh, and it, it was painful. But thank God for the moms because my mom would always come and save my life. And she would intervene. And she would say, you know, honey, you know, don't, don't kill our kids. It, it's just, you know, she would save our lives. But then she would bring me to the broken piece of furniture that I knocked down. And she said, say, did you see what you did? And... And I would say, yeah, you know, I see it, you know, and I had this guilty look, but I was waiting for punishment. I was waiting for, like, discipline of some sort. And she looks at me, and she says, don't do it again. It's okay. Just go. And I clearly remember thinking that day, uh, I lucked out. My dad was about to kill me. My mom saved my life. I had done something wrong. I broke her furniture. I was expecting punishment. I knew I deserved it. But she says, go, it's okay. And so inside, I was happy. Now, when you're a kid and, you know, your, your parents say it's okay, um, you got to still have that guilty look, right? So I did have the guilty look. But in my heart, I was so happy, right? Because in a sense, I got off scot-free. I got off scot-free, right? But when I look back, the thing is, when I look back to that broken piece of furniture, what I saw there was this. My mom was still cleaning up the pieces. She had to clean up the pieces. She had to sweep up the things. And even at that age, it occurred to me, even though my mom said it was okay that I could go, the furniture was still broken. Someone still had to clean it up. Someone still had to pay the price for that which I broke. I get to go scot-free. But what I needed to remember, even as a young age, is that someone still had to pay a price for that which was broken. And last week, what I tried to show you is that here it is, this idea of sin and this idea of the gospel and Jesus Christ dying for our sins. And that's why we have forgiveness. 
But sometimes I think we go around and we do things wrong and it's okay. God is good. He's gracious. Everyone's a sinner. And, you know, I don't really need to worry about it. I've been forgiven. But what we need to remember is this, that someone still had to pay a price. That it wasn't just, okay, you can go. Something was still broken and someone still had to clean up the mess. That there was a price paid for what I did. And I need to remember this. Because I keep breaking things all the time. Think about this. This is an amazing thing. Let's think about it negatively. We all know that you know, sin means something bad, right? But how bad does something have to be? That it only takes something like the blood of the Son of God to take care of it. How bad does it have to be? And look at the flip side. Let's put it more positively. You can tell how much you think something or someone is worth it by how much you're willing to pay, right? Monetarily, physically, mentally. And so if the creator of the universe sees it fit to pay a price that would require nothing less than his own son, how much worth it do you think he thought it was to him? How much do you think you are worth to this God? It's incalculable. Incalculable. You are loved that much. John Calvin, in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, said in effect, the more you know yourself, the more you know who God is. The more you truly know who God is, the more you truly see who you really are. And, And what I think he's basically saying is this, that if you really understood how good and holy this God was or is, then you'd really get a sense of how unholy you really are. And if you really could grasp and understand how unholy you really are, then you begin to understand then how holy this God really is. That the distance between him and us is much wider, much deeper than you and I could ever imagine. And yet the fact that such a being would lower himself self-deprecate, condescend to make every effort with his very being to come to you, to cover that distance, to reach you. How gracious does that have to be? How merciful is that? How loving is that? That's why they sing that hymn that goes like this. Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as a flood, when the prince of life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. Who his love will not remember? Who can cease to sing his praise? He can never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal day. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so as we move forward here now into our passage, what I want to do is I want to talk about this. Let me, let me just be very honest here. Um, 
you know, this is, I'm, I'm trying to make this as interesting as I can, but it, it's just very basic. I think, in a sense, deep down we already know all this, but I just want us to emphasize this. So I need to, uh, you know, I try to nuance things a little bit and, and soften things a little bit, but I need to come on a little bit just straightforward and, and hard and see, I think, what the Bible gives as God's perspective. As we look at this passage and ask the question, what exactly is sin? That it's so bad. If I were to ask you today, this afternoon, um, this past week, think of something that you did wrong, that you said wrong, that you thought wrong. Uh, what, what this past week is your sin? What would you say? What would you think it would be? What did you do, think, feel? That no matter what you thought, that God would say that was wrong. And I want to show us from this passage that we've just read, this famous passage that we all kind of already know, that whatever that is, underneath that sin, there is something even more basic, more fundamental, and deeper that we all struggle with. And that's what I want to talk about as we think about this passage in Genesis 3. When you come to this passage in Genesis, there are just so many things that, that we could talk about just from these verses. But I want to put this under a microscope and not just see this sin, this thing that was done, this act that was wrong, but go in deeper, more pervasive, the issue that we all struggled with. Oftentimes, uh, you know, when I get questions about the book of Genesis, especially about Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, it comes from a 21st century scientific mindset. And oftentimes the questions are often things like uh, the historicity of it, uh, the accuracy of it, uh, the scientific plausibility of Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and, and 3. But, you know, those questions are important. But if you read Genesis through, through your own cultural lens, right, if you want to come to the book of Genesis with an interpretive grid of a biology class, then of course you're going to have some questions. But the issue is maybe not with Genesis. Maybe the issue is the way we're trying to read it. Because Genesis was a book written in an ancient Near East culture. It was a book about the beginning. Not, not of the universe, but the beginning of the people of God. Not simply history, but a history of redemption. It's basically a biography of the people of God. Uh, an autobiography, if you will, of God himself. And so if you're reading a biography for scientific facts, then you're getting the genre confused, and it's going to sound or read confusing. But if you read Genesis, particularly from the eyes of an Israelite who is trying to be faithful to God, then what you get out of it is deeper than just, well, this is how God created the world. And in Genesis 3, this is the part where we call the fall. And if you ever heard this, most of, most of us, not even just in the church but around the world, know this story. In Genesis 2, God said, hey, Adam, don't eat of that fruit. Don't touch that tree. Don't eat that fruit. And what happens in Genesis 3? Well, uh, we say, well, basically the snake come in. And by the way, it's not snake. It's a serpent. It, we don't really know what that is. And there's this temptation and Eve's there. And uh, he, he says, you know, did God really say this? And, and Eve listens to the snake, which is not really a snake. It's a serpent. And he takes the apple. And it's not an apple, right? It's fruit. Okay, uh, but we know the story. Like they take the apple and she eats it and she gives it to Adam and they eat it. And that's how everything went to, you know, got messed up. Right? That's, that's, the, that's the story. 
But here's the thing. To appreciate what's going on here, uh, to understand Genesis 3, you, you have to really understand Genesis 1. And in Genesis chapter 1, that's how God, we're told, creates things. And it's not so much what he creates, but how does he do it? And if you read Genesis chapter 1, over 10 times in that one chapter, it's done like this. Let there be. Let there be. Let there be. And it was. And it came. And God saw. And it was good. That the way that God creates in Genesis 1, that the almighty God of the universe creates, that this creator God creates by speaking. He said. And it was done. That the power of his word actually creates out of nothing. Brings into existence something out of nothing. And so um, in chapter 1, the focus ought to be for people of faith is this. It was on the power of this God's word and the authority of it. And here's the thing. All creation obeys. Sun, come out. Boom. Mountains come out, boom. You know, seas, oceans come out. And think about this. I think we could relate. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if everything you asked, everything you, 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 you asked for was done just immediately and, and perfectly? I mean, how many times have we tried this? Listen to what I'm saying. Do what I'm telling you to do. Do what you're told. Follow my direction. And, and how frustrated we get, don't we, when it doesn't get done the way we expect or the way we've asked. It's upsetting. We get angry. Sometimes we get really frustrated. Why can't you just do what I tell you? You never listen, we say. You can't do anything, I say, we say. It happens. If you have children, it happens with my kids when they're a lot younger. It happens all the time. This is all we do. Stop that. Don't touch that. Right? Say thank you. Say you love daddy more than mommy, right? Uh, you and I both know even our children don't listen or obey the way exactly we'd expect. Much less so people at work, even in the church. And it's sometimes it's really upsetting. It's so upsetting. And what happens? Well, when it happens, we not only get angry, we, we, we punish. A slap on the wrist. Maybe a, a penalty for disobedience. Or simply just give that person a cold shoulder, whatever, Right? Um, if you understand or relate with this at all, then you can understand a little bit by God. If you multiply that by maybe a hundred thousand times, you might get what God is feeling. I said this, even the stars, the moon, and the sun obey. Genesis chapter 3, why can't you? So let's look at this and see what's going on here. And as you look at this, I want you to hear or think about what exactly the problem is, okay? And we'll get to the, to the point really soon uh, of what I think we need to focus on. Genesis chapter 3, we're already given a hint. This is even before Adam and Eve eat the fruit. It's in verse 1. The serpent, we're told, is more crafty than any other beast of the field. So you're already given a hint by the author that you have this, this creature in there who is considered crafty, cunning, right? It's a hint. And what he does is this. He simply asks Eve a question. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? This is why reading the Bible is important because every word is important. And here's the thing. For the first time in the Bible, 
someone actually questions God. Think about this. Someone actually questions his word. Did you really say this? But the second problem we see here, and he's really, he's really tricky, is that he quotes God, but he kind of twists it a little bit because God never said, carefully read, he never said, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. He said, just this one tree. And so already there is something that's weird going on that, that what was absolute and powerful in chapter 1 is now questioned and then also twisted distorted how does the woman respond how does Eve respond well in verse 2 she responds to the serpent well we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of that tree in the midst of the garden garden neither shall you touch it lest you die so here's the Eve she's trying I think to be you know correct and she corrects the serpent uh, but you read carefully again the verse there's a problem with the way she responds Right? Two things. She adds to what God said. She says to the serpent, neither shall you touch it. But God never said, you can't touch it. So she adds to God's word, right? And then she weakens God's word. You know, because when God says, if you eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. In the Hebrew, the word die is repeated twice. You will die, die. It's an absolute sense that you're really going to get it. But she leaves that part out and she simply says, you will just die. And so she adds to God's word. He never said, touch, no, touch it. And she lessens it or weakens it. Okay? Adding implies that there's something insufficient as it stands. Removing something from it implies that our minds are capable of deciding that God might be possibly a little off on the details. Now here's verse 4, okay? See where we're going? It, it's already a little weird. Verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. And here's the weird thing. The serpent knows the word of God better than Eve. He quotes word for word what God had said to Eve. You will surely die. And he simply adds a negative. You will not surely die. Right? And by questioning that command, the serpent questions the motives. You're not going to die. God said that because he knows if you do this, you're going to be like him. And he doesn't want you to do this. So he's trying to keep you from that. And that's why he, this God is petty and he's jealous and he's just trying to scare you. And so not only does he contradict God's word, he questions the motives of God. Now follow me, okay, if you're following me on this. These are minute details, but they're hints of something greater that's already going on even before Adam ate the fruit. Now you have conflict. Because now you have two worldviews. The worldview that says, God says you will surely die. Where God has determined the future of anyone who eats. Or God has given blessing for anyone who obeys. And then now you have another worldview. You will not surely die. Well, it says the human's world in a world of endless and pure possibility and chance. And this God doesn't really control anything. And so we're getting closer now to see the heart of the issue. Even before Eve even eats of that fruit, there's already a shift. That in Genesis 1, what was absolute, unquestioned, God's word, Genesis 1, is now reduced 
to an opinion. That's wrong. And now compare it with an alternative opinion. No, it's not wrong. But the point of the issue is this, and here's the point. Who decides between those two? It's not God. It's not the serpent. It's the man. It's the woman. It's Adam and Eve. It's us. I decide. For myself, I decide. God said this. This other people said that. Which one is it? They're both opinions. Who decides? I make the choice. Do you know why as Christians, maybe that our faith may not have much of an impact on our day-to-day lives? I, I think one reason is this. We just don't take the word of God seriously. And this book was written by people who took the word seriously. That's why it's written like this. We don't take it seriously enough, right? It's like, oh, you know, it's just not practical, but there's alternative perspectives, or the situation is different, and this makes more sense, or our culture, nobody thinks like that, nobody does that, right? So there's a shift that takes place here with what God says to now how it's dealt with. Here's the thing. If you believe that God exists, then necessarily... He needs to be the measure of all things. And then what he thinks about all things is the measure of what we should think. That he is the ultimate reference point for everything we know. He is now the the origin of our meaning, our identity, and our purpose. But what you see here is happening is this. Even Adam and Adam and Eve began to shift their reference point from God's thinking to their own. And in theological terms, we call this being autonomous. They have become autonomous, meaning this. Auto means self, nomos, law. They are now a law to themselves. They make themselves the final reference point for all knowledge and all truth. We decide what is right. We decide what is wrong. With ethics, we decide that this is good or this is bad. In psychology, I decide what I am in my head. In sociology, we decide what society is about and for. In biology, we decide, right, where we're headed and where we're going and who we are. And you see this transition taking place in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, she saw it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired, to make one wise, she took it, she ate it, and she gave some to her husband. Look, bang, 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 action after action. She took things into her own hand. She saw the tree was good. God already saw it and called it good. She saw herself pleasing to her eyes. God already said it was pleasing to him. She desires. She takes the fruit. And what did Adam do? Nothing. You know, here, Adam, have some. Okay. Right? That that was it. They give themselves permission to create their own reality by choosing their own definitions. They make their own choices. They define their own terms. They have displaced the creator and placed themselves in the center of their own world. They make their own choices. 
and they reject the trinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for another trinity. Me, myself, and I. Are you getting a picture now of what the issue really is? It isn't just all because they just broke that command and they ate the fruit. What did God say? Before, that's the question they asked in chapter 1. What does God say? Enthroned as the creator of the world. And now in chapter 3, he's dethroned. What do I say? All hail the self. And today, it's their version. It's their explanation of why we live in the way we do, in the world we do. That we live in a culture today that not only likes the idea of the independent individual, the self, but we promote it. Um, let me take a break. One, one of the first jobs I ever had in high school was at Burger King. I think I've shared this with you before. It's the worst job ever. Um, I don't really recommend it. And back then, minimum wage was $3.45 an hour. Can you believe that? $3.45. That's what I was doing, and I hated it. But let me just tell you, I like Burger King. It's flame-broiled, but it's frozen, okay? And you don't want to know what we did in the back with those frozen discs. Uh, you know, we used to play hockey with it in between breaks, and then when time got busy, we'd throw it back on the oven. And, it, <laughs> you know, we were dumb high school kids. But, but one of the things we like about Burger King, do you remember the motto that they had? Have it your way. Have it your way. My way was a Whopper with cheese, no pickles. I get upset when there's pickles because it's having my way. Look, pop psychology today. You're having problems loving people? You know what the problem is? You got to love yourself. You got to love yourself first. We promote this now. Look, relativism, everything's relative. There's no wrong or right. Everything's relative. It sounds like a good idea, but you know what it is? If everything is relative, that means everyone gets to decide for themselves. We need to protect that. Plurality. Oh, no religion is wrong or right. All are equally valid. And it sounds nice in the beginning, but what it is, what it, if everything's equally valid, then I get to decide for myself. Tolerance is a virtue. And, but if I'm tolerant of everything, that means everyone gets to have their own opinion and decide for themselves. Freedom, a good thing. But you notice, we only talk about freedom as a group as long as it means I get to do what I want. What is the sin here in Genesis chapter 3? It's not just about doing something that might be wrong. The sin here is whether you're doing right or wrong, the thing here, the sinfulness here is whether I'm doing right or wrong, I'm always thinking about me. It's my reasons. It's my opinion. It's my desires. It's my way. And I think that subtly but surely in Genesis 3, as we see this transition happening, that bottom line is that's what it is. And it, it, it plays out and it creates havoc in relationships because God calls them out and, and he says, Adam, what did you do? And what does he do? He blames the wife. It was her. Why? Because it's not me. 
So he goes to Eve, and what does Eve do? She blames the serpent. Why? Because it's not me. And husband and wife turn on each other. Why? Because they're thinking of me and not us. So this is anticlimactic. Because the issue I think here is so common, so mundane and typical, we don't even think it's an issue. And that is this. I think at deep down, the heart issue of sin is not just I ate the fruit and didn't do what God said. The heart issue of sin is this. Selfishness. Selfishness. And when I say selfishness, I'm not talking about where the attitude is. I, I just don't want to share. I don't want to share. No, no. That's too obvious. It's more basic. It's, it's more fundamental. We don't even question it. It's almost natural. You know, babies, the first thing they do is cry. Why? Because it feed me, hold me, love me. We're born self-centered. But it's natural. And we all say this. That everyone is like this. And so it's natural. But the point that the Genesis is trying to say that it isn't natural. It makes the individual self the ultimate reason, the motivation, the justification, the indulgence for everything else. And here's the thing. I am so focused on me, interpreting everything around me, right, evaluating everything for me. Even the good things I do have a little bit of me in that motivation. My heart is now set on default mode to do this. Ever since Genesis 3, that's what I think they're trying to say. And when I'm like this, there is no one I love more in this world than me. I am naturally inclined to turn inward on myself rather than outward towards others. Sin here isn't just what we do. Sin is now who we are. So how do I do this? How do I address this? Everyone would agree, I think. Selfish, everyone, in a sense, can be selfish, right? I mean, we can agree with that. But we also might agree that no one likes selfish people. It's not like you get up in the morning and say, I, I love selfish people. It's not the most lovable characteristic of us, is it? It's unlovable. How do you deal with something so fundamental and basic in our lives now? How do we, how do we address it? And the only answer I think the Bible gives is this. That part of us has to die. It's, it's got to be killed. And I think Jesus knew this. That's why he says in Mark chapter 8, he says to his disciples, who kind of understood what he was trying to say, he says, if you want to follow me, what do you have to do? Take up the cross and deny yourself. And the disciples knew what take up the cross means. It means you've got to die. You've got to die to yourself. You've got to crucify that part of yourself. But here's the thing. What they didn't know was that it was going to be Jesus who would take the cross first for their sinfulness. You see, no one loves the unlovable. No one loves self-centered and selfish people. But Jesus did. He loved them more than his life. 
He was killed so that you and I might kill that body of sin in our heart. He died so that you and I might be free from the bondage of sin, which is really a slavery to a sinful self. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for the love of Christ now controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, why? So that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake was died and raised. If I find myself always focused on me, centered on me, in one way or another, around me, and if I'm going to struggle against my selfishness, the way I struggle with that is not by beating myself up and saying, oh my gosh, look how selfish I am, look how sinful I am. But the way I need to struggle with that is this. I need to turn my gaze away from me and I need to turn it towards him. I need to focus away from my selfishness to his undeserved selflessness. To his love and grace for me. To what he did for someone like me. When I get a real sense of how undeserving I really am, how bad I really am, and I see this God who says, I did all this because I want to and because I still care, here's what happens. I am humbled. I'm humbled. And when that happens, there's a humility that works out like C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity. He says this. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is you start thinking of yourself less. You start thinking of yourself less. When I'm humbled by what God has done for me, even though I know in my heart of hearts that this is how I am, I start thinking of myself less. And that's why Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, have that mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He became born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Have this mind among yourselves. Now as we look forward, this is somewhat of an introduction, and this is where I'll end today, but as we look forward to the next couple of weeks, I wanted to see how important this understanding is, how we have raised our identity of the self above and beyond that of who God is, and what that does to us as people. But for now, if we recognize that this is an issue, and I think this is an issue for all of us, then there's some time we need to take to pray, to reconsider, and to turn away our gaze from us to him and ask for that humility. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you so much for your word. 
We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who continues to um, not only watch over us and care for us, but, Lord, uh, give us the strength, Lord, to endure uh, in the present moment um, all that we are experiencing going through that are difficult and um, hard. And I, I ask, Lord, that um, as we continue to live our lives, uh, reveal in our life the areas where we still need growing, uh, where we still need your mercy and grace, the, the parts of our lives where we still struggle. Um, and whatever that issue is, uh, Lord, we just ask that you would reveal uh, where it is that you need to come and where we need to leave, where you need to be bigger and we need to be smaller, where you need to increase and we need to decrease. We pray, Lord, that this is why we struggle with who we are, with who we are with each other, with the world and around people around us and the situations we endure. And so, Lord, address, speak to our hearts, speak to our sinfulness and our inclination to continue to focus on me and not you. Help us to struggle with that, against that. Um, and you've enabled us to do so because you have freed us from that when you humbled yourself and gave your life to us. So grow us, Lord, and help us to be thoughtful about this today. Give us strength to endure the following week. Help us to, Lord, be faithful to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.